All right, well, if you have a Bible, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6 this morning. Galatians chapter 6, read verses 11 through 15. We'll pray first. Father, we just ask you, Lord, that today we're, we're going to be uh, participating in the communion and just ask, Lord, that you'll just glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he's done on the cross and just magnify that in our hearts and our minds, and, and that it'll bring glory to you in your name. And we just ask you to do that. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. All right, so Galatians 6, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes there, See with what large letters I have written to you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And he says in verse 14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Probably been good to teach through the book of Galatians, and maybe we will, but... We're looking at chapter 6. I want to focus on verse 14. I will boast in the cross. He's going to glory in the cross because we're having communion Sunday today. But the overall message in Galatians, Paul preached to the saints there because he'd given them the gospel. They'd been saved. They'd been spirit filled. But certain Jewish teachers had come in and they said, well, not only do you need the gospel, don't, you not only have to believe that. They're saying that's great, but that's just not enough. You also have to be circumcised to be a complete Christian and to be in the family of God. And Paul tells them, he says, you foolish Galatians, that's not the gospel that I preach to you. In fact, he says, if someone else comes and they preach another gospel, let them be accursed. And he says that twice. He says, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven and comes and preaches another gospel to you. Don't listen to them. Let them be accursed because you can't add anything to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, especially not going back and saying you need to do things in the law to be right with him. Like they couldn't even do that. He had to confront Peter about that. Why are you trying to get these Gentiles to live? And you couldn't even do it to live like that. So salvation, he says, is by, and this is what it, it is. It's by faith alone, through Christ alone, and by grace alone. It's, that's just the way it is. Now, there's going to be works that follow, but those works aren't what save you. They're not what save you. So we're coming to the end of this letter in chapter 6. He's wrapping up things he's saying, summarizing things he's been saying for five chapters. But one thing he emphasizes, I want to kind of backtrack just a little bit in this chapter, is he says this. He's letting them know that life is serious and not to be taken lightly. And that is just the opposite of the message and viewpoint that you're going to get from the world. Because the world will tell you that your goal in life, your purpose in life is to be cool and have fun. I mean, really, that is the message they're giving you. You younger people may not mean much to you, but old Burt Reynolds, and I'm not saying this to pick on him in any sense of the word. I'm really not. But he just died and they're celebrating his life and remembering him this way. This is one article amongst many that are out there about him. And this is what this guy said. For seven years, and this was when I was uh, 17 to 24, 1977 to 1984, Burt Reynolds, the actor, was he was hotter than Paul Newman, Robert Redford, all those guys. He was the biggest paying star, had the biggest box office gross of anybody during that year in Hollywood, biggest star in the world. 
And this is the way it was. Every guy wanted to be as cool, good-looking, macho, easygoing, yet cocky, and have that little wink in their eye like Burt Reynolds. That's what that guy said. And I thought, you know what? I wasn't saved then. At least I wasn't in 1977. And I would have loved to have been Burt Reynolds. I thought, man, that's the dude to be like. And here's what he wrote in his memoirs before he died. He said, I always wanted to experience everything and go down swinging. Well, so far, so good. I know I'm old, but I feel young, and there's one thing they can never take away. Nobody had more fun than I did. And, I mean, the world just applauds that, and they just think, that's great. Bert was cool till the end. Wasn't quite as good looking to the end. He had to have a few plastic surgeries, and that didn't even help. But the world thinks that's great, and they glory. They do. They glory in the Burt Reynolds image. They always have. But, listen, if Paul were asked, Paul... What do you think about that philosophy of life? Do you think that's a good philosophy of life? I'm sure his reply would have been, not at all. Because we are responsible people made in the image of God. One day, we're going to have to give, including Burt Reynolds, we're going to have to give an account of our lives and all that we've done. And he would say, here's the principle that I think you need to put into practice. And it's here in Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8. He says this, he says, Do not be deceived because God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of that flesh reap what? Corruption or death. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap what? Everlasting life. So our eternal destiny, it is that serious. It's really nothing to be laughed at. It's nothing to be admired if somebody sowed to their flesh all of their life and seemed to have it all, right? Our eternal destiny hangs on what we've sown on a daily basis. Starting today, it's what we've sown. And if we've sown to the flesh, then we'll reap corruption. What things do you do to sow to your flesh? Just look back one chapter back in Chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, and he tells you, it's not hard. Now, these are the works of the flesh. They're evident, he says, and they are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Those are sexual sins prevalent in our society today. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outburst of wrath or anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions or heresies, which really is better, divisions, creating divisions, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which Paul says, I've told you this beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those that do those things and sow to the flesh in those ways that practice those things, that doesn't mean if you got angry once it's all over, obviously, right? That's your way of life. That's your modus operandi. You're in trouble. Any of us, we'd be in trouble. You can't sow to the flesh and think you're going to reap everlasting life because he says God is not mocked. How do we sow to the Spirit? And there is a lot of contradictory voices speaking, all claiming to be Christian, Using Christian terms, love, grace, mercy, they'll use the name of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We love the same Jesus. But there's different meanings and implications behind those words. You could say mercy, grace, and fill it in however you want. 
It doesn't always mean the same thing to all people. And Jude tells us this, because I think there's a lot of voices today in this country. We've got the most religious country you can imagine. But there's voices are leaving multitudes astray. And Jude says that we need to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Earnestly contend. And why does Jude make that statement? He said, this isn't what I wanted to write to you about. But this is what I had to write to you about because he says certain false teachers have crept in, he says, unnoticed, secretly slipped in. He said they're ungodly men and here's what they do and here's what they teach because they'll use the word grace predominantly and love and mercy. But he says they turn the grace of God into lewdness or a license to sin. And in doing that, he says, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because much of what is done in the name of Christianity today, especially in America, is under the banner that we are free and we're not going to be put under any restrictions because that is legalism. And so we can sow to the flesh and somehow we're going to reap life in the end. And God says, I will not be mocked like that. That's not going to happen. Not in the end. And so what's the answer to all this? What is the answer to sowing in the spirit? The answer is what we're going to talk about today. It's the cross. That is the message. And the cross tells me how I can sow to the spirit. The full message of the cross. It tells me how I can reap everlasting life. It tells me how I can face death and smile. That's what the message of the cross will do. And look. Read again, verse 14, he says, Paul says, but God forbid, may it never happen that I should boast except in what? In the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's the center and the heart of the Christian gospel, the message of the cross. Sometimes we do. We like to glory or boast in our children and their accomplishments, our sports teams, our cars, our houses, our jobs. But for Paul, and really I would say for all true Christians, really their true and only boast should be and is in the cross of Christ. Because we'll talk about, won't we? We'll talk about what we glory in, what we're really all about what we live for, what we work for, what we're willing to die for. That is what, if you follow conversations, when you get into something, I get into something, I tend to talk about it. (laughs) That's my family. But it should always be the Lord Jesus Christ is, we're like homing pigeons. That's where we go back to in our hearts and our minds and in our time. So the question is, what is your boast? What do you glory in? Because sometimes we boast or glory in our religious activities and all the things we're doing for the Lord. Paul was that way at one time. He didn't always boast in the cross. In fact, at one time, he despised the cross and not only the cross, but the Lord who died there. And so what was his boast and his confidence? It was in his pedigree. Circumcised the eighth day, he says, I'm of the stock, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. I mean, that guy knew the law literally backwards and forwards. And he said, not only that, you want to talk about legalistic. He said, it's concerning that backwards and forward law that I knew. I not only knew it, I lived it. Blameless, he said I was. And so we think, well, we got to get everybody get back to being blameless outwardly. No, we need to have a change inwardly, don't we? 
As Paul had that all outwardly, and he said, I excelled. I advanced in Judaism, he says, far beyond anybody my age. We have a lot of those in this room, and I can tend to be that way, and I've met a lot of people this way. He was what they call a type A personality. A type A personality, driven to be the best, driven to outdo everybody else, and Paul did. He was above, he says, everybody that were his peers, until... Until his boast is in what he had done and who he had outclassed and who he could outquote scripture wise, who he outfasted. He would have been like the Pharisee in the temple beating his breast. I'm glad I'm not like other men. I fast twice in the week. I give and all that. And he's boasting of himself and what he's done, his works. Whereas that poor publican, he had nothing to boast of. And he says, God be merciful, the word is, propitiated, sacrificed to me, a sinner. They're, they're both saying this, praying in front of the altar. This guy's like, I have nothing, Lord. You have to give me everything, the publican. Not like the Pharisee, though. And that was Paul at one time, until Acts 9. Knocked to the ground because the glory of the risen Lord appeared to him. And he had a revelation of the cross at that point. The cross that he despised, the Lord that he despised and was out persecuting. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. He saw it all. Revelation like he'd never seen before. And that totally reversed everything in his life. His boast, his ambitions, his priorities, and most of all, it changed his nature. It reversed his nature. We read the Gospels and there were many people that were given a revelation of the cross that completely changed how they viewed that cross, completely changed the course of their lives eternally. And that's what has to happen to anyone that's a Christian. So the Jews, their leaders, the Roman soldiers, and the two dying thieves, all of them involved in the crucifixion at one time, all they could see is this weak, bloody man dying a slow death. Just another imposter that's getting his due. That's all these people could say. They railed on him. All of them did. Every single one of those people I named, they railed on him. Some spit on him. Some punched him. Some slapped him in the face. But then the grace of God came down on that scene, on some of them. And the Spirit of God pulled back the veil. Their eyes were opened. And they saw the reality of what was happening on that cross. And that's what has to happen. The Roman centurion, he's the one, he, he was the overseer. He was in charge of overseeing the crucifixion. And I'm sure that he was in that crowd of soldiers that put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, saluted him as hail king of the Jews, struck him on the head with a reed. It said they spit on him. They mocked him by bowing down to him and worshiped him as a king. He was probably involved in all that. He might have been the head and shoulders man leading the way on all that. I don't know. It doesn't say. But I'm sure he was in that crowd. But the grace of God came down on him. God had plans for that centurion. And there he is. He's standing near the cross. It's his job to make sure there weren't any problems. But I'll tell you, that man, a hardened soldier, he wasn't prepared for what happened. Because there he is standing next to that cross this hardened soldier, darkness comes on midday, covers the earth for three hours. 
and God is beginning to affect him. At noon it happens. An earthquake splits rocks open. Graves are opened because of this earthquake. And it says in one account, he heard everything Jesus said. And when he died and he heard the way he died and what he said, he heard all of it though. Father, forgive them. He heard all of the things he uttered. I thirst everything. It had an impact. God's spirit was working on that man. When it said he cried out his last word, the Bible says this. He says, he feared greatly and said, truly, this man was the son of God. Uh, It wasn't him saying that because he's superstitious. And he's seeing all these signs. I'm just superstitious. It must be something to No, he had a revelation. A man named Hengel, who wrote a really good book on the crucifixion and what took place. He said this about the centurion. He said, a crucified Messiah, son of God or God, must have seemed a contradiction in terms to anyone, Jew, Greek, Roman, or barbarian, asked to believe such a claim. See, we look back because we know what happened. We wear crosses around our neck. Back then, in polite society, you didn't, a Roman wouldn't even use the word cross or crucifixion. It was uncouth to say it. It was a disgrace. No God or king or savior is going to be on a cross. No way. They're not even thinking that way. That would have been absurd to them. And he went on to say, and it will certainly have been thought offensive and foolish. The fact that the passion and death of Jesus on the cross evoked the confession of the centurion indicates that he, by divine revelation, divine grace has been granted the mystery of faith in Jesus as the son of God. Grace opened his eyes and he crucified many people, I'm sure. And all of a sudden, this crucifixion, though, became something to glory in for that man. Truly, this was the son of God. Nothing like that had he ever seen. The two thieves Both of them verbally abused Jesus when he hung with them. Both of them. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us while you're at it. It says they mocked him, reviled him, abused him verbally along with everybody else. But suddenly, suddenly, like the Damascus Road, like the centurion, isn't that how God works? Suddenly one of them has a change of heart and the cross took on new meaning. Now, nothing had changed in any of their natural circumstances. That thief hurt just as much. He's seeing Jesus. He doesn't look any different. Nothing had changed. But his spiritual vision had changed, and he went from a reviler to a defender of the Lord Jesus. And you think about it, Jesus is in the middle of the two thieves. They're railing on him. And then he begins to talk past Jesus to the other thief. And this is what he says. He says, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. Now, there's a person there that is not justifying what's happening to him. He's realized, I'm getting what I deserve. And that's the beginning of a person's salvation. Until you see that, you can't be saved. But he says, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But he says, this man... God had opened his eyes. This man has done nothing wrong. And it says, and then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, as surely I say unto you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. That man woke up in the morning bound for hell. And the sun didn't set before he was in paradise with the Lord. What a day, huh? I guarantee you he wasn't overcoming depression. Uh-uh. And how more depressing could it be to be slowly dying a crucifying death? Oh, there was joy in that man's heart, though, as he died, wasn't there? <laughs> it really was. So what does that tell us? That tells us one thing. It's never too late to sow to the Spirit, is it? You've been sowing to your flesh all this time. It's not too late to start sowing to the Spirit. That man had been sowing to the flesh in his last hours. He sowed to the Spirit and reaped everlasting life, didn't he? Whoa, that's something else, isn't it? But here's what we have to remember. God's grace only opened the eyes of one of the thieves. So we can't take his grace for granted or lightly. Any of us in here, it says in Hebrews, today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And the thief didn't. And gloried in the cross. You know, I remember, uh, I think I've got this story right. If it's not right, it's like real close. Didn't have time to check it out. But years back, when I first moved here and I painted with Steve Scherf, he told me one time there was a the sign company. And Steve said that he was leaving that sign company and going to his van. And he said, this doesn't happen to me. But the Lord clearly impressed me to go back and talk to the owner of the company and tell him that you need to get right with God. And he did that. Went back and told the guy, you need to get right with God. I don't usually do this kind of stuff, but I feel like the Lord's told me to do that. And I don't remember if the guy laughed him off, or but he kind of didn't do anything about it. I don't remember exactly what happened on that. But I do know this. The next day he was killed in a head-on car wreck. Today, he says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because we are never promised tomorrow, are we? I've never forgot that. So here, the cross of Christ, it's the boast of the New Testament. The central theme of the Gospels, the Epistles, the, Re the Book of Revelation, all through. The true message of the cross, it wasn't popular then, and it's not popular today. The preaching of the cross, I'm talking about the true preaching of the cross, has never been popular. Not in Jesus' day, not in our day. It has always brought scorn and persecution. It has. First Corinthians 1, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The ones that are perishing, I don't care who they are. It's, it's a foolish message. Not that Jesus loves you. Oh, that, that doesn't bother him. But when you say you're a wicked sinner, and you're going to go to hell, and you need someone to stand in your place and change your nature, that offends them, doesn't it? But the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And Paul went on to say, but we preach Christ crucified. That's what he preaches. It says to the Jews, that was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, that's utter foolishness. That that's how the power of God will be displayed. Utter foolishness. And you say, well, yeah, but there's lots of churches out there with crosses on their steeple. They preach the Bible, morals, helping others, the love of Jesus and the grace of God. And I'm saying all of what I just said there, none of that is offensive to the world. None of that. They don't mind hearing about morals. They don't mind hearing about the love of Jesus, the grace of God. They don't. A dear relative of mine, I'll put it that way, can sit with me and talk about the moral teachings of Jesus. Talk about that he was about loving others, accepting them, doing good. He can talk about Jesus' message was being the best person you can be. That's how he interprets 
the Bible yet. If I say, do you believe that Jesus is God? No. Don't believe that. That he took the punishment of our sins. He had to take your punishment that was due you because you're a wicked sinner. And that because of the, the cross, God will supernaturally change your nature so you can be a new person. He thinks that is absurd. And he thinks this, this whole thing about someone rising from the dead is statistically unlikely. And this is not the God he knows because he will say, you can't know God. No one can from the Bible or anyone else. And he's offended that I think and would say that he is a wicked man that is going to hell. And I'm like, I was in the same place. I'm not saying it because I think I'm better than you. Everyone in this world, born in this world, is wicked and going to hell. That's just offensive. And that's the way most people are in America. They hate the message of the cross and they certainly wouldn't glory in it because most people, if you ask them, are you a good person? Almost everybody, you walk up to them, they will say, yes. It doesn't matter if they get drunk, do drugs, they're thieves, they're committing adultery. Oh, no, I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person. Now I mess up a little bit. That's what you'll hear. Why would the person like that glory in the cross? 2003, George Barna reported that most Americans do not expect to experience hell firsthand. Just one half of 1% expect to go to hell upon their death. One half of 1%. Two-thirds, nearly two-thirds of Americans, 64%, believe they will go to heaven. So if you're a person that's going to heaven because you're basically a good person, why would you glory in the cross? You don't really see the need. Jesus is just a good moral teacher, but he was just that, no better than Muhammad or Buddha. That's the way most people look at him. And the message that the cross displays, the justice, the holiness, and the righteousness of God, that is offensive. And it's becoming offensive to a lot of so-called evangelical Christians. And because of that, because people don't want to hear it, and they have ways of letting you know they don't want to hear it, because of their itching ears, and it doesn't get preached then guess what happens? Nobody's really convicted, are they? And church is just a good time, and Christianity is just a good time, and let's just be positive about everything. That's the biggest church in America. That's what it's all about. Well, let me just say, the cross, though, it is the great theme of the New Testament. It is. The Gospels, the book of Acts, through the epistles. And let's take the Gospels in Matthew 16. I mean, you could bring out a lot of things, but Peter makes his great confession Jesus asked him, who do you think I am? He says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So it takes a revelation to even see that Jesus is the son of God, doesn't it? You're not going to figure that out on your own to truly believe that. But the Lord went on to tell Peter in Matthew 16, but you need the rest of the story. The Paul Harvey rest of the story. And he told him, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, did Peter say, praise the Lord? That finishes my revelation. I am so glad you told me that, Lord. I can glory in that now. Is that what Peter said? Peter took him aside, took his arm, get him away from everybody. I'm going to have a talk with you, Lord. 
took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter rebuking Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Because God says sin has to be judged if we want to be free. Men say, No, we don't want to hear that. We want to hear about the power and the glory. It's the same spirit working. That's the devil. And Peter couldn't handle the cross at that point. He didn't, couldn't handle it. None of them could. What he didn't understand was that Jesus being the Son of God, that he saw that that wasn't enough to save him. Because the Lord of glory could not save a single soul because of his divinity. He had to die. He's the Lord of glory, but he can't save a single soul because of that. Or he'd have never come. God's always been God, right? He had to die. And he had to teach his disciples, yeah, I am the king. I truly am a king. But I'm unlike any king you've ever known or heard of because I'm not a king like the ones you see in the world, the ones you've experienced. I didn't come here to rule with power. He told him, he says, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. He says, but not me. That's not me. Listen to this. Here's what the king of glory said. The creator of everything. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And here's why he came to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. He's a king that came to die. Now figure that one out. A king that came to die. So the cross is all through the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And it says there as he prays, his glory is revealed. His face is altered, bright as the sun. It said his clothes turned white as a fuller could make them, and they glistened. His glory is coming out, shining forth. And then it says Moses and Elijah appear in glory, and they begin to talk to him. Now, what would you think they would talk about? This is in Luke's account, Luke 24. And it says that they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the word for decease is exodon in the Greek, where we get the word exodus. And the number one thing on Moses and Elijah's mind, here is Jesus displaying his glory in front of them and the disciples, the number one thing on their mind is that he has to be encouraged to go to the cross. That's what they're speaking to him about. He has got to go through with it because that's the only way they represent the law and the prophets. That's the only way all that was spoken in the law and the prophets can be fulfilled. Everything pointed to Jesus and all of these sacrifices that were accepted on the basis of him coming and dying. Everyone's forgiveness in the past and in the future would be bypassed, would be void if he bypassed the cross. And so we have to see the cross is vital, the main thing of Christianity. Right before he's crucified at the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus took bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. I mean, it's like they say, the Gospels are basically 
passion accounts. They're accounts of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ with long introductions leading up to them. But that is the focus all through the Gospels. Big parts at the end of it. It's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go to the book of Acts, all through the book of Acts, the cross was the central message that was preached by the apostles. In Acts 2, Peter told the Jews this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in our midst, as you yourselves also know. That's not his focus, though, all the miracles. He says this, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, wicked hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? What do we do? And he's told him, you need to repent and be baptized and be joined into union with that crucified Savior, because that's your only means of forgiveness. Now, that was the effect when they preached the message of the cross. Repentance came. Repentance. You're not going to get repentance, true repentance. You're not going to get salvation, forgiveness, because without repentance, there is no forgiveness. And without the message of the cross, it'll never happen. No conviction will come. But Philip, he goes down to Samaria. He preaches Christ and the cross. Multitudes in Samaria, (laughs) majority of the city, I would imagine, were saved, baptized. And once that happens, once your sins have been forgiven and you're washed and clean, then God pours his spirit out on you. That power can come on you. That's the promise that is given to those that are washed in the blood of the lamb. And that happened. And then the spirit tells him to leave there. You're not going to stay here and get all caught up into what's happened with these people. So I want you to go out on the desert. Go out and start walking on the desert. Comes to the Ethiopian eunuch. And what was the Ethiopian eunuch reading when he came on him? Isaiah 53. Can you help me understand this? The crucifixion. It's the central message. And what was Paul's message when he went on his missionary journeys everywhere he went? One sampling tells us all. In Acts 17, he comes to Thessalonica. And it says this, then Paul, as his custom was, this is what he did. He went into them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. That's the message a true missionary preaches. It's not fun, games. It's not nursery rhyme. No, it is the message of the cross. That's what you see in the book of Acts on their missionary journeys because the Bible says that is what is the power of God to salvation. And Paul says, that's, therefore, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the message of the gospel. Because a lot of people are ashamed of it because they know people aren't going to like them for saying it. They're not going to like getting a track handed to them. Telling them about the Romans road? Oh no, they're not going to like that. And in the epistles in Romans, after Paul says that 
all Jew and Gentile are guilty sinners before the Lord. He wrote in Romans 3.21, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. We can't be saved by our works, he said. It's revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned. All have sinned. That's the message. And fall short of the glory of God, but now being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. It's the blood, the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. That precious blood. Because he went on to say two chapters later in Romans 5, 8, the blood demonstrates God's love. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he says much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So listen, what is the greatest blessing and demonstration of God's love? It's not the new car. It's not the washing machine or a raise at work. It's that while we were still sinners, he was willing to send his son and shed his life's blood on our behalf. That is the greatest demonstration of his love. We deserved wrath and he took it for us. In every one of Paul's letters, he makes much of the cross. It's God's plan of reconciliation. And he was burdened to get that message to a dying world. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How does that happen? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our sin is what he's telling them. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I could go on and on and on and give examples of that. The entire New Testament proclaims the death as the only answer to man's fundamental problem, sin and its consequences. And the last book of Revelation begins this way, to him who loved us. How did he love us? He washed us from our sins in his own blood. The death of the Lord Jesus is the prominent thing in the entire Bible as far as that goes. And what are we doing today? Communion. We're celebrating communion. And those elements of the bread and cup represent what? Paul wrote, for I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you. It's a command from the Lord Jesus that he began at the Last Supper and he once continued in his church. Because he doesn't want us to forget what is central And he said this, Paul wrote this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do we do? He says, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Just like the Passover every year, God says, I don't want you to ever forget what happened here. Every year you need to celebrate. And it's the same. We do it once a month. Some churches do it once a week. I wouldn't have a problem with once a week. Honestly, you can't overdo it. I don't think. We meet once a week. You could say, well, it could just get to be whatever. Well, there's a lot of things like that, right? You brush down and brush your teeth once a month. <laughs> I guess repetitious too, doesn't it? Well, once a month, we lift up the cross. What are we remembering when he asks us to do that once a month? Does he say, remember my teaching? 
Does he say, remember the example that I set before you? I mean, all of those things are important, and I'm not downplaying it. But here's the thing. Without his death, those things would be meaningless. They wouldn't matter at all. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest. What took place on Calvary is the greatest spectacle of all time. And people love spectacles. They love to watch and gather and gaze at great events, don't they? Whether it's the Super Bowl. What about these rallies now they have in Washington, D.C.? They've been having those for a while. And to show you that people love spectacles, you can't get to where you want to go many times because of the spectacle of an accident. Everybody slows down to a crawl because they want to see the spectacle of how bad was somebody injured. People like spectacles. (laughs) But there's no event or spectacle that has happened in all of history like the cross. And God is calling us today to gaze upon His Son through the communion, through the word that's preached, and see the glory in the cross, in the love that is there. That's where love truly is. The great hymn goes like this, When I survey the wondrous cross. In other words, when I'm gazing at that, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's a great song. When I survey the wondrous cross. So that's what happened. At the cross, God's lamb was sacrificed and our sins were laid on him. And in the Old Testament, God's holiness and need for sacrifice are clearly on display. So from the garden on, the word of the Lord was, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And the wages of sin is death. People don't want to hear that, but there is nothing cruel. There is nothing unjust. There is nothing unrighteous in that declaration. The soul that sins, it deserves death. People in America right now, It just keeps getting worse. We rebel against justice, righteousness, and holiness. And you could take two things this week. Just if you've watched any of those Supreme Court hearings and the way that man is treated, that judge, total disrespect for a judge that is just. Total disrespect. And this tennis match yesterday, my kids come down and they say, we've seen something we've never seen before happen. This Serena Williams Her coach gets caught cheating. And what's the response to that? Well, he admitted he did it. But it's like, what's the big deal? Everybody does it. And she gets an attitude. And then she smashes her tennis racket. And because of that, she gets another penalty. And she just can't leave the man alone. It's not like all he's doing is just, I'm doing my job. And now he's being maligned. But she calls him a thief. 
and she calls him a liar. And he just finally is like, I really don't have to put up with this and said, you just forfeited a game. And here's the thing. Who does the crowd side with? Do they side with the judge? Oh, they side with her and they boo him. That's America today. And she's saying, and her thing is, I'm picked on because I'm a woman. And she says, and I just have to just keep being humble. I'm like, huh? That's where we're at here in America. We have a right to protest. We can talk about the president. We talk about anybody, whoever we want to. And the Bible says, you're no better than a natural brute beast. You're going to be destroyed one day if you think you can just talk about government and people that are in authority that God has placed there any way you want to. Whether Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. We need to get back to what does the Lord say, not what do we do, what does our society do. That's not right, just because they do it. And here's the point is God says the soul that sinneth it shall die. We all deserve wrath, death, and eternal judgment. Every single person in this room. It's like I said, we've got to be like the thief on the cross. The condemnation we deserve, we justly deserve. That's all we'll ever deserve. Man's just desert. Yet, this is the thing God in his love and grace supplied in the Old Testament. These pure, spotless lambs to his people. From Adam and Eve to Abel to Noah to Abraham to an entire nation in Egypt supplied enough pure spotless lambs that could stand in their place as guilty sinners. They had to slit their throat realizing that should have been my throat slit. Received the death penalty for him and the people, he set that sacrificial system up. They would bring their bulls, goats, or lambs to the priest. And what would they do? They would lay their hands on that innocent animal and confess their sins. And when they did that, they symbolically transferred the sins that were theirs and that they had committed. They were transferred from them to the lamb on the head of that lamb from the person to the bull. And the bull was slain and its blood. It was a bloody mess sprinkled on the on before the Lord before the horns of the altar, on the horns of the altar, and they poured the rest out at the base of the altar. There is blood everywhere in God's holy dwelling. That's the only way man could be involved with the Lord. And on the day of the atonement, two goats were brought before the Lord. One goat was slain, its blood collected, taken into the Holy of Holies by the high priest, and sprinkled on what was called the mercy seat. And in the mercy seat, underneath that mercy seat, was the law of God. And that blood is there, so instead of seeing the law and the justice that should take place, God sees only what? The blood. Just like what was on the doorpost in Egypt. He would see the blood. The other goat was brought to the high priest. He would lay his hands on that goat's head, confess all the sins and transgressions of the people, laid his hands on the head of the goat, and that goat was then sent out into the wilderness. It said to a place, a wilderness, an uninhabited land, never to be seen again. And both of those goats are combined in the Lord Jesus Christ, the innocent lamb that shed his blood, that bore our sins, never to be seen again. And when that happened in Israel, on the Day of Atonement, God's wrath was turned away for another year. And for another year, he was pleased to dwell with them. But every day, every single day of the year, two lambs were sacrificed in the temple. 
in the morning and in the evening. 730 lambs a year had to be sacrificed and killed innocent, pure lambs, so those people could have fellowship with God. And that should speak to us. All of that fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was God's lamb. John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God laid on him your sin, the pure, innocent lamb of God, the son of God, the Lord of glory. Isaiah 53 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The burden of your sin and mine was laid on him in a sense. The Father laid his hands and transferred our sins onto the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our guilt was given to him. And here's the amazing thing of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. When that happened, he didn't complain. He didn't resist. He didn't fight back and praise God. He didn't quit, did he? Because it says this in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now that is love. Because we'd all been complaining about how hard it was, wouldn't we? So why did Jesus, the Lord of glory, come to earth to teach? To give us an example, primarily he came to die. He had to die so we could live. No other way. Came to save, he calls us his brethren, God's children. Came to save us. It says that in Hebrews 2. We'll close with this. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood... He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy. It's the only way it could happen. He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And it also says in Hebrews 2, And we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, why, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. Praise God, he did. Amen. And now we understand why Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for what you've done with us, for us, through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he, the Lord of glory, was willing to hang on that tree on our behalf and take that punishment, take the wrath, your wrath, your full wrath. He drank the full cup of your wrath on our behalf so that we could be cleansed, forgiven, filled with your spirit to be your children, that he can call us his brethren, that we can experience your love and care in this life and in the life to come. The song says, Lord, we owe you everything for that. What can we give to pay you back? So we're so thankful for that, Father. And I just ask you will impress this on our hearts and that we can glorify you 
in our lives on behalf of what you've done. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.